Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. You know what I'm about to say. Can you please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. And it's the only way we keep this show on the road. We keep the mics on, lights on and bills paid. You're paying it forward so everybody gets the podcast for free. So just think of it as the easiest bit of activism you can do. You get a ton of additional content and all of our podcasts as quickly as I can turn them around in one consolidated feed, completely plea-free. So not only is it a bit of activism, it's also a little gift you can give to yourself. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of coverage on Israel-Palestine, but we've a ton of other podcasts on the way, including a great conversation with Sinn Féin's Owen O'Brien. And our Martin McMahon had a great conversation with University of Limerick's Professor of Economics, Stephen Kinsler, on the Karshan case and what it means for the gig economy. All of those will be in the Patreon feed as quickly as I can get the bloody edits done. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. But one more time, please click the link, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Echo Chimper Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the things that we didn't get to talk about this week. Uh, myself and Martin are going to break it down and then in a little while we're going to be joined by Gareth Brown, eagle-eared listener, eagle-eared, that's not a real term, I'm sure it's not Martin, um, but, uh, but, but eagle-eared listeners, I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll we'll have heard Gareth Brown on before. He's the freelance journalist based in Ramallah, and we haven't really given the West Bank enough coverage because even though what's happening in Gaza is abhorrent, and it is abhorrent, um, Ramallah has seen the West Bank has seen some of the, the highest death rates in years, and settler violence is is out of control. So Gareth will join us to talk a little bit about that and a bit of context around it. But before we get to Gareth. Um, and by the way, yeah, I am smothering, folks, so you can probably hear it in my voice. I'm absolutely smothering, but um, we keep going. I'm delighted to be joined on the line, Martin. I told you uh, Gareth would be jumping in. Gareth Brown is a journalist in Ramallah and has been uh, reporting from the area for a number of years now. Gareth, uh, the West Bank has been uh, obviously seen incredibly violent scenes over the last little while. Yet, of people have kind of looked the other way because events in Gaza have um, have shocked the world. Can I ask you first of all, uh, how are you? What's the situation where you are? And uh, and this is the biggest story in the world now. And now you're on the ground for covering it. It, it must be um, it must be an incredible, uh, difficult time for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm personally I'm fine. I, I don't really have a. There's nothing I can really complain about. I think. Um, I think. The West Bank is a far bigger part of this story than is being given credit for. And I think, um, I mean, obviously, if you spoke to a Palestinian, they would tell you that the West Bank and Gaza are fundamentally linked. And I think that's even more so the case now. Um, you know, obviously, that it's, it's not really, as an international or foreign journalist, I can't get into Gaza at the minute. It's impossible. Obviously, there's lots of Palestinian journalists there doing great work. Um, but but going there is is just, frankly, not a realistic option at the minute, but, um, you know, covering this conflict from, from the West bank, I actually do feel like I'm in, in the, in the center of it because I think there's a realization that we are not since, since the Hamas attack on October 7th, we're not just talking about Hamas. We're not just talking about Gaza. And I think the conversation and the debate has sort of zoomed out a bit. And now we're talking about the Palestinians writ large. We're talking about the Israeli Palestinian conflict. We're talking about the Palestinian national movement. So when I go off of that kind of criteria, actually being in the West Bank is uh, 
is the perfect place to be because we have the Palestinian Authority based here. And then you've got, you know, 45 minutes, an hour at the road. We've got, we've got Nablus and then Janine Camp. And we, we all know what's been kind of unfolding there over the last two years in terms of, you know, settler violence and these new Palestinian militant groups, which have sprung up. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we are, it's a sort of back to the future thing and, and no longer, this war is, is not just about Gaza and it's not just about Hamas. Um, it's about the future of the Palestinian movement and Palestinian people writ large. So, um, yeah, Ramallah is a really good cl- place to kind of cover that from, I would say. Oh, no, I, I would agree with you. I just think it's it's interesting how you've successfully framed it in ways that our media has struggled to for over a month. They've Because they keep, you know, I will still pick up a paper today and it will say the Israel-Hamas war. <laughs> and you've been able to fr- frame it so much better in, in the opening 90 seconds, because that's the truth. This is something that is, is central to the Palestinian struggle and Palestinian resistance. Let's, let's call it what, what, what it is. Can I... Can I ask you the the, the obvious question um, is 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 the little bit of context of what's different in terms of how it's been perceived in the West Bank and how it is in Gaza? Um, obviously, you know the absence of Hamas is the big one people point to. But what other differences do you see uh, in terms of the the the, the resistance movement? Um, I mean, look at the the look. The armed groups in the West Bank, are, the way they operate is very different. You know, in, in um, I mean, Hamas in Gaza is essentially, I mean, it's essentially an army, right? It's essentially a kind of the army of Gaza. You could, you could describe it, the Al-Qassam brigades. It's, it's sort of like, you know, Gaza's, Gaza's army. Um, and in the West Bank, they tend to be a lot more disparate. They're less centralized. And they tend to kind of, um, I think over the last two years, they've um, popped up when, when things have happened. Um, so, um, you know, following spikes of settler violence or, um, you know, uh, particular incidents, we've seen like clusters of individuals pop up and they could have been related to Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad or, or the lion's den. You know, that's what everyone's been talking about in Nablus for the last two years. Um, and they're much smaller. They don't really have the capacity that you see kind of Hamas is, is demonstrating now in Gaza and they're when they're they're doing stuff, it tends to be a bit more like um, piecemeal. So kind of hit and run attacks on Israeli settlements or checkpoints in the West Bank, or like we we saw this like spate of, um, you know, shootings and attacks on Israeli civilians in, in Tel Aviv. So it's, it's just a really different like um, form of operations that they do. Um, But I think it's fed by the same things which are feeding what is going on in Gaza. And, and, you know, that, they're fed by a lack of a political horizon, which has been absolutely dead for years. They're also fed by, um, you know, the settler violence. And, and here, obviously, in the West Bank, you're, I think the big difference between the West Bank and Gaza is, is in the West Bank, Palestinians have to interact with the occupation on a much more kind of visceral level. So that could be as simple as checkpoints, but it could be getting a permit to go and work in Israel. I mean, I think as a Palestinian in the West Bank, you have to interact with with the occupation on a daily basis on multiple levels. Um, and in Gaza, you, you, it's less the case. Obviously, you still have to interact with it. If you're a Gazan, you know, a Palestinian worker from Gaza who's going to work in Israel, then you have to, you know, go through the ARS checkpoint and things like that. But but you're, I, I don't want to say that Gaza is a bubble, but you're 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 less uh, you less have to to interact with with Israel, Israeli forces, and the occupation. 
on a day-to-day basis. And I think that is a, that's the key difference. Um, and like, you know, at the, at the minute you can see how, I mean, the West Bank is locked down if you're a Palestinian. There's checkpoints everywhere. You can't, it's not easy to move between Ramallah and Nablus. I can just about do it. But if you're, if you're a Palestinian with a West Bank ID, it's very hard. You know, there would normally be about 200,000 Palestinians from here, from the West Bank going into Israel to work or working in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. And that's like kind of completely ground to a halt. Um, so that's... Um, and a lot yeah. of those workers are, are were held up. I mean, I know so, uh, certainly a lot of those workers were held till recently, Gareth. Have they been released? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, there's no um, like easy answer. So I think some of them have been released. Some of them are, 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 are like here in Ramallah. Some of them are in Jericho. Uh, the Israelis did send a few back to Gaza, a few hundred back to Gaza uh, about two days ago. Um, but there's, there's a lot of them. And, and yeah, I think... Uh, they don't know what to do with them. Essentially, uh, they're, they in, they're in an they awful situation. You know, they are. Like, it, it is an awful situation to be trapped in. Can I ask on the settlers? Is the settler is the resettlement of the West Bank as vociferous as the settlers in Gaza? Or are they a different breed of settler altogether? I think it really depends. Like even in the West Bank itself, you can point to different areas or different different settlements where the settlers would be a lot more ideological. And, and and maybe maybe more violent, but not necessarily. Ideological and more violent don't necessarily go in hand, but they tend to. But then there are also um, places that you can point to um, where um, you know s- settlers are a bit more benign, might be the word. So I'll give you I'll give you two examples. Um, one is like uh, south of Nablus. You have lots of settlements there, and there's this is a real like um, flashpoint in the conflict. So the Palestinian villages there, those rural areas south of Nablus and the, and the settlements, those settlements tend to be really ideological and really quite aggressive. And, you know, we saw a few months back in Tormasaya, what was essentially a pogrom, you know, even the Israeli, Israeli army itself was labeling these acts terrorism, settler terrorism or nationalist terrorism. So that's like one, that's on one side of the spectrum. But then I could point you to somewhere like, um, Gush Etzion, which is the settlement sort of south of Jerusalem on the on the road to Bethlehem, and they tend to be a bit more like mellow. So there's there's fewer there's fewer immediate kind of clashes there. If you like, you get a lot of actually you get a lot of like like American and British settlers living there. So um, you can you can pinpoint you know settlers is a is a really broad word. Um, it's a really broad term, and obviously. You know, all of the settlements in the West in the West Bank are are, are illegal under international law, but it, it can be. Um, you know, some people just live in settlements because it's cheaper. Um, you know, and you can get a cheap house there to commute into work in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. But then some are, you know, sticking the Israeli flag in the ground and saying this is our land. So it's a whole spectrum, which which is interesting, and you can kind of pinpoint it on the map. It gives you an idea of wh- where there'll be problems or violence or or where there's like to be. You know particular issues, but obviously the the government itself, this the, the new um, yeah, new, they're what about a year old now? This this Israeli government um, are uh, are not helping the situation when you've got Itmar Ben Gavir going in and you know saying I'll I'll give you weapons, I'll almost deputize some of these settlers, I will um I w- you know I will make sure that. You, if you, if someone gives you shit, like if if you if you feel under attack, you will be free to do uh, carry out bloody acts. And we know statistically 
you know, settlers who um, face prosecution for carrying out crimes against Palestinians, their their conviction rate is less than 2%. So there, there is a huge imbalance there in the justice system as well, Gareth. And this government, this particular government, must be stoking the flames of that, as you said, the, the more ideological, you know, um, flag in the ground type. There there are like different spectrums within the Israeli government. And, and the key thing about this, especially this government is, is you have like settlers, people from, you know, the particularly more ideological parts of the settler community are in key positions in the government. So it's a kind of tail wags the dog sort of, you know, set up. And, and the two are uh, Smotrich, who's the finance minister and, and Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's national security minister. So they are really, um, you know, they're in key positions in this current Netanyahu government. Um, I would say that, um, and there's even been historically, I mean, it's definitely in the last two years, there's been some friction between the IDF and the settlers. Um, you know, a great example was that, that the, the, you know, in Termasaya when we had the violence there and, the, and, you know, the settlers kind of rampaging through that, that Palestinian town. And then the army came out and said, these settlers are, are terrorists. And the settler leaders were like really furious at the army. And you could see these like fissures opening up within the Israeli system. But I think it's really noticeable that since October 7th, the army and the settlers who are carrying out the violent acts appear to have coalesced in the West Bank, at least. And I think that this pretense that the army, or this idea that the army was, was actually trying to deal with settler violence has been lost. Um, so you see videos of like settlers who are wearing um, army fatigues or, you know, army trousers and and it's like not so clear, like, okay, the guys doing this in Hebron or in the south of Nablus, are they soldiers or are they settlers? And there's a re I think there's two, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that you have a, um, the, the, the makeup of Israeli forces deployed to the West Bank has changed dramatically. So, you know, it, after the seventh, when, when the Hamas attack happened, they called up hundreds of thousands of reservists. So they took the professional soldiers who were in the West Bank and sent them south to the Gaza area or to, to the northern border with Hezbollah, uh, with Lebanon and, you know, where that, they kind of see that threat from Hezbollah. And so you had a lot more reservists put into, you know, sensitive areas in the West Bank. Now, the problem is some of those reservists are settlers. You know, sometimes you have a, a you could have soldiers sort of being deployed to, you know, a few miles away from their village, which is just in any context, not a good idea to, you know, mm. you know, have a, <laughs> a uniformed soldier sort of, deployed in a, in an area where their own family lives. So there's probably an element of revenge. Um, you know, I think it's, I don't think you can underestimate like how Israeli society at large is just, it's just, it's just so. Can, can we traumatized by what happened on October yeah, 7th? Yeah, traumatized is the word, yeah. traumatized and angry. So, but so, so I'd say a little bit of it, it, this, this rising violence at the minute, a little bit, some of it, it's probably 50% revenge, but then it's also, there's an opportunism, an opportunism there. Yeah. You know, if, if you can see. Just, just, oh, just on though, on October 7th, one of the things that went on, obviously, you know, it was barbaric what, what occurred, but nonetheless, one of the reasons people speculate that it happened is because so many, so much of the IDF were sent 
to the West Bank to deal with what's been happening in places like Janine to deal with this area and they didn't have the the, the military capability closer to Gaza. Is there still, um, you know, there's a lot of reports coming out now, opinion polls saying, actually, when this is over, we're, we still blame Netanyahu for this. He, he, he dropped the ball on this. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to move against Netanyahu whilst there's a war going on, but I, I think there's a, there's a massive resentment within Israeli society against Netanyahu. I think what you just described there was not just a, with, with the army. It was, it, it's, it's more, a, I think that's a symptom of Israeli complacency. And, and it's not just Israeli complacency, it's everyone's complacency because I didn't see this happening. Um, I don't think anyone saw it happening, you know, and actually I read a great piece by, um, Salam Fayyad, who was the, you know, he was president of the, he was prime minister of the PA a few years back. He wrote a great essay in The Economist and his opening line was that this was a great example of the expect, the expected happening unexpectedly, which for me has been, that's the best that anyone summed it up. But yeah, I think, I think there was just a general kind of complacency and that manifested itself in perhaps there weren't as many troops deployed there. They weren't, um, looking at the intelligence in the way they might uh, usually they weren't doing certain things that they would have been doing in Gaza f- five years ago. Um, so, so that's, you know, I think that kind of answers your question, but yeah, definitely there's a, there's a fury with, with, with Netanyahu and he's, he's many people feel he's to blame for it. What are the, I suppose the, the, the dangers of the conflict now spreading to the West bank or actually becoming embedded in the West bank? I know it's there. There is They've killed more people in the West Bank since October 7th than they did in any other year for the last eight years, I think it is. Yeah, you know? yeah. so the conflict is there. It's just not as recognized, we'll say, as what's going on in Gaza at the moment. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it's a very, very real... I mean, you can... Tony's made the argument that it's already happening, and, and I think that's a very fair argument. I think it can get a lot worse. I think the key thing you're looking at is like how well can the institutions in the West Bank hold up against it? So we talk about regional conflagration, right? Um, we've been, everyone's been talking about this a lot. And usually that comes in the context of Lebanon, Hezbollah, Iran, Syria, the Houthis in Yemen. But actually, I think that there's another pathway um, to regional conflagration. And that is essentially what happens in Gaza Um generates a significant amount of instability in, in the West Bank and with the, the Palestinian Authority here and the leadership in Ramallah. And then that in turn could have knock-on effects in Jordan, which is, you know, yeah. just next door. The West Bank is Jordan's backyard. I think it's a really real possibility. There's two, I guess two things I would say on that is one, we have, I think, as long as I've been here, the talk has always been of like a third intifada in the West Bank. That is to say an uprising against Israeli forces or Israel in the occupied West Bank, or Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. And that's a very real possibility. But I actually think we should also be examining the possibility of something more akin to like a Palestinian spring. Um, That is to say a Palestinian revolt against its own leadership in the West Bank. There's a tremendous amount of frustration on the Palestinian street here that the leadership in Ramallah are sitting on their hands whilst Gaza is flattened and However, we want to um, judge, you know, Hamas. However, it's judged in the Western world. Can I, can it's- I, can I come to that? I think that's a really important point that that you're forming there. The idea is that some of the times they look at the PA 
in in the West Bank, and they say you're so weak that you're actually just an extension of the Israeli administration. You know, you're you're, you're whereas none of this happens. We're we're you know settler violence happens to us all the time. Because we don't have Hamas, as you as you alluded to, we don't have our own um, our, our own military. You know, Hamas is you know you said Hamas is a, is a standing army. It's it's a few things. It's a standing army. It's a political force. It's kind of a, a civil service in, in in a part. And none of the, you know Irish people will get this when we talked about our own uh, our own history of what what Sinn Fein was. What Sinn Fein? Where's the relationship between Sinn Fein and the IRA and these these sort of things? But in the West Bank, there is. I, I'm sensing from people I've spoken to there that there is a there's a, you know, we are the PIJ, for example, just you know, um, aren't going to, to to address the issues while the PA, the Palestinian Authority, um, continues to rule in a uh, how do I put this? In what people view to be a subservient way, and 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 I do sense that anger with people I talk to, and and I mean that like. I just want it all to stop, Gareth. I want it all finished. I want. I don't want any more. But I also sense in some people I speak to that um, I think I think you've hit on a really important point. This could become um, a, a Palestinian spring for for the phrase of views. I think it's I think it's really well thought out. Yeah, I mean that's that, that feels to me like a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank are, are increasingly looking at the PA and going, "Well, this is mm. this is our first problem." This is the first thing we have to deal with, you know, and the, the leadership in Ramallah have just gone silent. I think they have this like kind of track record of just trying to muddle through and they've done it quite well, to be honest, in previous uh, issues and, and conflicts. But uh, I feel like it's not going to work on this occasion. And it's, um, y- you know, that is if we so we need to look at like unrest and let's say the West Bank kicking off. Um we need to look at it in a different way to what we're seeing in Gaza. And I, and I think that's one, one way that is kind of underappreciated. I think it's a very high risk. And it's not the only risk, of course. There's always the lab. There is always the, the possibility that the lab will kick off as well. I mean, that is the, I mean, there is a regional conflict in the making. There's absolutely no doubt mm. there's a, a much wider regional conflict in the making. And Iran's influence on all of that is, you know, the fingerprints are pretty much everywhere on it. Mark, can I make one quick point before that? That was the Israel struck inside Lebanon several times since October 7th. But one of the interesting ones was in the last 24 hours, I think they hit up to nearly 15 meters away from where uh, UN troops would be, you know, in, in, in those grounds. And it shows how tactically clever these weapons are. That they're 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 striking these areas and they're staying away from this, and I put that in the context of people who say, you know, oh, they're trying to not create maximum impact in in Gaza, and you know, in Lebanon, Gareth, they've been kind of that that it's it's already sort of broken out to a little. There, there's conflagrations there already, but they're doing it in such a way as to not draw in some of the other individuals and groups that are involved. Yeah, I think you can't write off Hezbollah. I I think a really good way to look at it would be like, you know, they obviously Hezbollah intervened in Syria, right? Mm-hmm. Started as a protest, uh, as a rough revolution, and then it morphed into a really awful civil war. But Hezbollah didn't get involved in in Syria immediately. They they got involved when it looked like Assad. You know, there was there was a period where it really looked like Assad was going to be toppled, and that was when Hezbollah, you know, obviously in coordination with the Iranians. And with the Russians, they went in and they had a huge effect. And um, 
you know, I've I've always thought, and and Nasrallah even said this himself uh, in his speech the other day that I think a red line for Hezbollah is like the complete destruction of Hamas in Gaza, and they're they're that's kind of like their baby brother in the you know in the axis, and so okay, you know sometimes you actually see some people are trying to make the 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 point that. Hamas are disappointed that Hezbollah haven't done more, but like historically, Hezbollah, you know, intervened in Syria when it looked like their very close ally Assad, their patron Assad, was about to fall, and so I, I, I think it would be foolish to like rule them out, and and you know that's just taking Nasrallah on his word that that that's what he says. It all, it all, it, it's a bit. I don't want to say it's performative at the minute because I think Hezbollah have lost about 50 fighters, right? So it's not it's mm-hmm. not insignificant. And, you know, Israeli troops have been killed on the northern border and you have tens of thousands of Israelis have been evacuated from their homes along that border. So it's already serious. Um, but I, I, don't, I just don't think you can rule that out. And, and I, I, I think similarly to how the PA in Ramallah's legitimacy is tied to what happens in Gaza. And I don't see how the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah are going to be able to sit on their hands. Not that they're going to do anything, but if they if they think they can sit on their hands whilst Hamas is wiped out in Gaza and have any credibility left with the Palestinian street, I think you could apply a similar kind of measure to um, Hezbollah. And and can Hezbollah sit by whilst they're you know whilst Hamas is is wiped out? Not so Ultimate. Sure. Ultimately, none of this bodes well for Israeli security into the future. Is it paradoxical that what they're doing, what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, is actually weakening their position rather than strengthening it? It's a very good question. I mean, you do hear voices in the Israeli security establishment who kind of see this as a golden opportunity. I think it was um, Yossi Cohen, who was the former head of Mossad, was on Israeli TV a few nights ago. And he was like, forget about Gaza for a minute. This is an it's a historic opportunity to go after Hezbollah and get rid of that boogeyman on our northern border. So I I think some people are really worried and 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 kind of see it exact, exactly how, how you've described it. But I think there's people within the Israeli security establishment who would love the opportunity to try and deal with Hezbollah. Now, whether they can or not is obviously a different question, something we could spend hours talking about. Um, but it's not as, I don't think the logic from an Israeli perspective is as clear as that. Some, some people would love nothing more for them to deal with Hamas in Gaza, then go north, deal with Hezbollah, you know, then you've, you've sort of wiped out two of your biggest headaches. Um, I think. But as, as you've said, Gareth, there are groups that pop up and there are groups that pop up and they can be amalgamations. Martin, you can't, you 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 can't can't wipe out an an ideology. You know, you simply can't. I mean, there was people, Gareth, you'll probably have heard this. They were talking, they were comparing what they were going to do in Gaza with the, with the American soldiers, um, advisors, military advisors. And they were talking about Fallujah and you're going, Oh my God. Like when you entered Fallujah, there was 10,000 insurgents. You, you, you gave birth to 30,000. You know, um, and 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 this is the worst part of this because if it does go the the way it could go, America's uh, part in this. You know, they've 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 brought the warships in, and everybody says they're there just to make sure Hezbollah don't get really too involved to to send the message to Iran. But but the the geopolitics of this, like you pointed it out two minutes ago, Assad is still in power. We thought Assad was going to fall. 
Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. didn't. Iran, Russia, Hezbollah and all. And they, they managed to maintain that axis. And he's, he's back. He's still in power. So, so it's, look, it's deeply worrying. It's deeply troubling. But I just think, I just, as someone who, who, who was afraid for, for, uh, where this goes, I, I think we have the worst leadership, political leadership in, um, in Israel to, 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 to fight this, this battle. And, a lot of absentee bloody leadership in the, in the Palestinian uh, territories uh, and in Palestine, and that and that's doesn't augur well for for a good outcome to this. No, I I, I agree with you. It's it's bad leadership. On, I mean, it does feel inevitable that there's going to be new leadership on both sides when this is over. But it's, I guess, then the question is like, what what is left to rebuild? Um, I think, and just to like pick up on something you mentioned there about Fallujah is. Um, you know, I was in I was in Mosul for I spent a year reporting there during the battle there, twenty sixteen to twenty seventeen. And that was so, really very brutal, like brutal beyond uh, it was it was it was I mean that was the first I did that straight out of university. That was the first thing I ever reported on, but it was uh it was devastating. But I, I think I think there's a really I think that comparison the Gaza Mosul com- comparison and, and also Fallujah, I, I don't think it really stands up to much scrutiny. Um, because from what I saw in, in, uh, Mosul was, you know, ISIS was, a was essentially, a, I mean, there were obviously Iraqi elements to it, but it was seen, it was perceived as Iraqis in Mosul as a foreign occupying force. Um, and they had control of Mosul for what, two and a bit years, three years. Now they built a pretty extensive network of tunnels. I, I mean, I was, in, I've been in those tunnels. It was, and it was a nightmare for the Iraqi military, for the Iraqi special forces. Fighting in those tunnels is is not fun, even for your most elite, well trained soldiers. Um, but then you have Hamas, which is is far more organic, and it's it's not a foreign occupier in Gaza. You know, it's part of the it's part of the body politic there, and they've also had it for you know fifteen years. They've been building that network of tunnels. A lot so, longer than fifteen years, if we're honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean. God knows what they're up to before before 2007, but I, I think I would be really hesitant of people who are saying, "Well, oh, this is how it played in Mosul. This is, you know, so we can we can kind of take, you know, that is a plug and play strategy to deal with it." I don't I don't think it will work, and I I just uh, I just yeah, sorry. I think you're dead right about that. It's not a plug and play, and when you're looking at the numbers involved, the numbers are very different involved. Mm-hmm. The numbers of fighters involved the number of soldiers on the ground involved, all very, very different. I suppose, Gareth, there's no real sign or there's no real plan for a clear end game from anybody in this. Where this ends, nobody has any real idea. That would always be seen as strategic mistake, military-wise. What's your exit plan? You know, there doesn't seem to be an exit plan for Israel in this. Do you think there is? No, I, I, I I don't think anyone thinks that the Israelis have got an exit plan. And I, I don't even, I think, I think the people in charge in Israel don't even see that as a problem at the minute. And they're being urged to kind of reconsider it by, there are ideas floating around. I think there's some good ideas floating around. Um, but it's not, uh, there's no like watertight plan at the minute. And for for now, it's just defeat Hamas, whatever that means. I mean, the thing I worry is, the Israelis have set such a high bar for themselves with their rhetoric and what Yav Galan, the defense minister and Netanyahu, across it, they've set such a high bar for victory. 
you know, they've said that they're going to take out the entire senior leadership. So that's Yahya Sinwa, Mohammed Adif, these guys. So they have to get them. I mean, if, if, if they can't kill those guys, then they can't, they can't pretend to be victorious. They can't be considered victorious. But then they've also talked about this whole dismantling of, of Hamas in Gaza. And I, I think that's unrealistic. So my, what I think we need to consider is if, if we, let's say this three months or six months, if Hamas come out of this and can, can in any way claim victory, um, then I think that's really dangerous for, 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 for almost everyone because um, it's dangerous for the Israelis So because they've set this really high bar. But also they kind of, Hamas would kind of become, I think, almost the representative of the Palestinian movement. You know, if they can, if they can, if they can claim, I feel like that is a route to legitimacy. If they can claim victory, and and for them, they could fudge victory as being able to survive six months against the strongest army in the Middle East, or getting to a point where what if the Americans can't kill Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Adif? I mean, it's then Hamas can come out of this and say we're victorious. We are the standard bearer of the Palestinian cause, the Palestinian national movement. And I think that would have really profound consequences for Israel, for the Palestinians, for, for, for the PA in the West Bank, for the international community, for the Gulf. I mean, I think it's, it's, and I don't think it's something that we've, that has been thought out. You know, what if there's an assumption that Israel is going to win this? Um, and what if it doesn't? It's, I mean, I, I don't even know what the landscape looks like then. I mean, yeah. I, you can probably see my yeah, mind. The best laid plans don't survive the first engagement, girl. Yeah, we, yeah, we all know yeah. quite well. Thank you very much for your analysis on that, particularly that last bit. That was really, really interesting. Thank you for your analysis on that, Gert. Stay safe. Yeah, and of course, we, we, we will be back to have a chat with you again. But do stay safe and thanks for your work. Thanks a lot. You guys take care. No, thank you so much. Um, I want to just make a couple of points that we made before um, how how bad this is right now for individuals on the ground. So we obviously, Gareth, you'd know, we, we speak to people that, that, you know, we, you speak, to, we, we've covered this, this conflict from, uh, from all sorts of angles, but in the last 24 hours, um, uh, uh, Mohammed, uh, Shihada, uh, who was on the pod the other evening, his family home was destroyed. Like Mohammed is someone who debated Hamas, who wanted to talk about the problems with Hamas and what they do in Gaza. And his home has been targeted. Um, we know Loe El Bassani's been on this podcast several times. Uh, the the Palestinian NASA space engineer last night his 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 aunt was killed, uh, and that's following last week his his cousin was killed. So you know it's the page it's three hundred and thirty eight pages right now of people who are registered as dead, and I believe there's also about about eighteen hundred people names that have not been added to that yet. This is particularly grim, and um, it is a really, really barbaric situation. want to see the end of it, but I think, Gareth, it's brilliant analysis in terms of where this actually goes, because unfortunately, in these military th- in these military aspects, they're not really looking at it. They are just numbers, and unfortunately, they are just numbers. Um, look, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it, uh, and we will uh, throw the link in for, so people can find you on social media on the pod. Uh, folks, we will continue to cover this as we go. We have plenty more coming your way. Um, and hopefully Zach and I will rejoin us as well I'm just getting a few whatsapps here now talk to you all soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people
podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.